Go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, I will start reading in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The last time we were in this great letter, uh, we covered verses 6 and 7, talking about the humility that we need before God and how confidence in God's care for us and believing in His care is one of the most foundational pieces of humility. And so, this text, I believe, flows directly from that exhortation regarding humility and confidence in God's care. So, I'll seek to show that. We're going to be focusing on verses 8 through 11 as the second half of this broader theme of God's care for us. Before we get started, let me pray. Father, give us this sobriety of mind that your Apostle commands us to have. Help us be more mindful of one another. And think about the ways that our actions affect other people, both in this room and in our homes and in our neighborhoods. Give us greater humility. Cause us to believe in your care for us. We are so prone to forget. Give us boldness. Give us hope as we look toward the end. If you would, pray for yourself where you are, that the Lord would bless this time, that you would be strengthened by what you hear today. And if you would also pray for me, that I would have strength to communicate, clarity of mind, speak, and notwithstanding the technical issues, would be able to get through this in a way that would glorify the Lord and help us.
Father, we love you. We trust you. Pray that you would do at this time as you will for your glory, the glory of your Son, Jesus, by your Spirit. In the name of your Son, that we pray. Amen. We saw the last time, two weeks ago, that we were in 1 Peter, this grace-humility dynamic, that grace is really, really important. If you're a sinner, and if you can hear me speak, you are a sinner, therefore you need God's grace. It's the most important thing that you need. Therefore, we should ask the question, how then do we get grace? And the answer of this text is, humble yourself. Well, how do we do that? There are many, many bad ways of trying to humble yourself. There are great phases of Christian history where they got that question so wrong, it just created other forms of pride that were ingrained in the way that church was done. And so the Apostle Peter gives us a very clear, a very clever, a very counterintuitive and cutting answer to begin to pursue biblical humility, and that is to cast your cares upon the Lord. Why should we do that? Because he cares for you. So we saw that there is a connection between unbelief in God's care and pride. For pride is the rejection of the sufficiency and the reality of God's care for us. We don't really believe quite enough that he loves us and cares for us out of that love. So, how does this text then, verses 8 through 11, connect to that? And it is part of my claim, at least from a grammatical sense, that they do connect. If you're just reading things not carefully, you might just think that Peter is jumping to a whole other section, a whole other bundle of thoughts. He's just kind of wrapping up and saying a lot of things at the end, but I think that they are inherently connected. In a way, I think verses 8 through 10, and you can include 11 if you want to, are the biggest stress tests of that principle. Does it really work? Cast your cares upon the Lord. In the prayer meeting last Sunday, after following that message over God's care for us, I said, it seems that after hearing this exhortation to cast your cares upon the Lord for so many in our church, and for myself too, it got even harder to do that. Maybe it went south in your attempt to cast your cares upon the Lord. This stress test is accomplished in two ways. There were two elements of the last message we had on, on First Peter. I said that it is part of God's care, even in his providential ordaining of the things that cause you anxiety. It is not just that you are supposed to hand him over your anxieties and the cares and concerns of your heart, because he's the only one who can take care of them. You must hand over your cares and anxieties about those things, because nothing that happens to you, brother and sister, is not from his providential ordaining. This text answers that God is in control, yes, even of those things, even to the worst one that you can imagine, Satan himself. Second, I said in that message, it's worse than you think. 
those of us who struggle with anxiety or if you're proud and you think you've got it all together, it's just a different manifestation of not trusting in God's care. So we, we don't get how bad it really is. That God is really the only one who can deal with it. How bad is it? This text answers. There is a global spiritual war being waged where the stakes are no less than the eternal fate of souls. The hard binaries of perseverance or apostasy, faith or rejection, sin and holiness, being devoured or being victorious, that is happening all around you, is being waged regarding you, and we're all participants in it, our actions and our thoughts help or hurt in this conflict. And most of us are not even aware of it. Or maybe we are from a theological perspective, or we do not take precautions like this text commands. If you could see it, your eyes could be opened. It might change the way you live. My dad and my mom they showed us war movies when we were younger to try and prevent us from going and joining the armed forces. When you're raising six boys, I guess you got to figure it out and make sure they don't, don't get themselves killed joining the special forces. It didn't really work. We all kind of wanted to do something along military lines. So I decided to be a pastor, right? Um, but real soldiers see stuff. And real soldiers can't come back from that. And if you could see the battle, and see the stakes, and see the devastation, and to use the word of our text, you see the devouring, maybe it would change the way you live. The point of this text is that casting your cares, your worries, your anxieties about even all of that still works. And what else can you do? Well, what you cannot do is not think about it. This text is uncanny in a few different ways, but one, it tells us about threats we can't even really see and that we can do very, very little about. But at the same time, the answer of this text is not just to trust Jesus to take care of it. It tells us to join in the conflict. It's not just like David and Goliath, right? But our role is not to be like the cowering Israeli soldiers just waiting for our champion Jesus to go out and defeat the giant. We are called to participate. We are to take a stand and resist. So there's a claim of this text, I believe, that, that is made in verses 5 through 7. The claim is, confidence and humility in God's care is how we persevere in faith until the end. That's how we do it. Because it's going to be hard, and it's going to get harder, and it may not be very long until it gets very, very hard for you yourself personally or for the church as a whole. Confidence and humility in God's care is how we persevere to the end. So the stress test is this, and this is what our verses give us today. Will it really work 
in the most dire conflicts we face until the end? So, here's how the text, I think, answers that question. Armed with confidence and humility in God's care, we will be spiritually prepared. Armed with confidence and humility in God's care, we will be spiritually prepared. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. There's a general sense of these words. It could mean something like, be sober of spirit and stay alert. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he exhorts his disciples to stay awake or stay alert, be on guard. But there's a contextual sense of these words that I don't want us to miss. These, like I've been saying, are not disconnected texts. Verse 8 doesn't begin a new section. So what's the, what unites them together? This is the claim. This is important. This sobriety of mind that he is talking about is specifically the mindset that comes as a result of confidence, a, a result of your confidence and humility in God's care. Being sober of mind, then, in this setting means believing, continuing to believe, and being stubborn in your insistence to believe that God really does care for you. And I think this is proven with the different places in this letter that the Apostle Peter has used this phrase, be sober-minded. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this idea of God's care, His ability to bring you safely home, and the hope and the glory and the blessing that await you there at the end is the ground or the root from which your sober-mindedness must grow out of. You're not just called to be a stoic or level-headed attitudinally. You're to be rooted in a fundamental belief that God cares for you. That is what prevents what I will call spiritual intoxication. He's not talking about literal intoxication here. That's another message. He's talking about spiritual drunkenness. Don't be drunk spiritually. What happens when you are fully convinced of and do not resist the solid and unchangeable truth that God cares for you? You're less tumultuous. You're more serious. You're sober in mind and watchful. So in line with this text, I think I could ask this question. By what is your mind or spirit intoxicated or drunk? What causes you to lack sobriety of mind? It is any mindset, any attitude or thought that operates in isolation from faith in God's care for you. If you can believe it, and it doesn't contradict with God's care for you, it's not a spiritual intoxicant. But if it goes away once you are fully convinced of God's care and love for you, That is spiritual drunkenness. I want you to think this way. We have a hierarchy of sins in our minds. 
whether or not it's from the Bible or just our culture, most of us don't even know. How off-putting, how dangerous and sad would it be for me or anyone else in our church to walk around with a 1.75 liter bottle of cheap whiskey and take a good swig every 15 minutes? That's what the Lord sees when he sees us giving ourselves over to these spiritual intoxicants. And it's more offensive because it is a brew of your own making. The first step, and every step along the way, and the last step of victory over this spiritual drunkenness is some form or iteration of humbling yourself, being confident in God's care. So do not, do not avoid or run away from the things that call for you or necessitate that you die to yourself a little bit more or more than you ever have. That is how God liberates you from spiritual drunkenness. The second thing he talks about is staying alert. Be sober of mind, be sober of spirit, and stay alert. These two terms go together. And watchfulness is the result of spiritual sobriety. The one on guard, this is the image that he's giving us, the one on guard, the one standing guard or keeping watch at night is the one person who simply must not be drunk. And you, you stand guard, you stand watch over your own souls. Moms and dads, you stand watch over your households. Older siblings, you stand watch over your younger siblings in the faith and in your biological families. You who are leaders and teachers, you stand guard over the family of faith that is this church. How well are you doing in those capacities? Do you have a wartime mentality As I've asked before, are you just playing along or are you playing for keeps? When someone looks at you or looks at how you behave, do you give off the sense of being mindful and serious enough to be left as a watchman over the souls of other people? This is what you sign up for as a Christian, not just a leader in the church. We're to stand guard. The summons is to all of us here. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Act like a watchman. If you can understand what I'm saying, then there is someone who's looking up to you. And either way, you're to stand watch over your own soul. Are you doing a good job? Or are you drinking those spiritual intoxicants while on the job? Be alert, stand guard, don't get drunk in mind and heart, or body, obviously, and stand watch. You know, seriousness gets a bad rap sometimes. And we shouldn't be anxious in our seriousness. But we all need to take this Christian life a bit more seriously. And it starts with an attitude of watchfulness. With confidence in God's care, to be sure. Let's put it very simply then. Do not be anxious, rather be very, very.
very alert. And I can just ask this question now. What do you get drunk with? Mint in the metaphorical sense here. It's not a question of if, but when and with what. There are so many candidates. There are so many substances in real life, in, in the physical world rather, that can cause intoxication, but there are many more that can cause this spiritual or mental drunkenness that cause you to stupor and impair your judgment. If you were to take a spiritual sobriety test, what would the levels indicate? What is your preferred stimulant? Is it pride? Is it the anxiety that comes from being proud? Is it your success? Is it frustration or bitterness about your lack of success? Is it the stress of feeling like you don't measure up? Is it fear of man? Is it imposter syndrome? Is it overconfidence in yourself? Is it self-centeredness? Is it thoughtlessness or just an insatiable desire to express your opinion or be heard or to be liked? You know, you can put all physical stimulants out of your life so that you will never even come close to the sin of physical intoxication. But this intoxication of mind and spirit is even more offensive to the Lord. And we don't even think about it. We give ourselves over to it almost constantly. We almost never come out to sobriety. I want to be as compassionate as I can in saying these things because I'm a fellow recovering spiritual drunkard in this sense. I hope you get that. But understand, it may be the case that a lot of what is wrong in your life or what seems to be wrong in your life could be that is also the root of a profound lack of joy in your life might be, might be, because you've never put down the bottle. You've never thrown it all away and put away your proclivity to those things that give you a spiritually intoxicated mind. Armed with confidence in God's care, we will be on guard. We'll be watchful. Also, armed with confidence and humility in God's care, we will have clarity. Clarity. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is not grammatically at least presented as a ground for spiritual sobriety. He doesn't use the linking word for or gar in Greek. He just says it as an undeniable fact. This is true. It's presented as the context for one of the reasons, at least, why we should think about the seriousness and need for spiritual sobriety of mind and watchfulness. This is, as I said, part of what I meant two weeks ago when I said it's worse than you think. God is sovereign. God is in control. But there is a maniacal, powerful, cruel, deceitful, cunning, ancient evil spirit, active and working in the world. Not just to give you a bad day. Not just to cause you to sin occasionally or to get discouraged. He wants to devour you. 
I don't watch much TV at all, but I've seen enough clips from National Geographic or the Discovery Channel to know what it looks like when a lion finally catches up to, to the gazelle. That's the image that Peter wants to come to your mind when he talks about what the enemy wants to do to you. This statement raises a few questions for me. Is he trying to scare us? I mean, why intensify the imagery here? Uh, We should not fear the enemy, right? Why intensify it with such violent imagery? I mean, I've seen the ghosts in the darkness. Raging mad lions prowling around. That's terrifying. There's almost no image that the Apostle Paul in the first century could come up with to, to show how dangerous the situation really is. Do we think enough and rightly about our enemy? Does it make some of you uncomfortable that I mention the enemy pretty often? There's a strong divergence even in the Reformed tradition post-Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther talked quite a bit about the enemy. Calvin didn't. Which tradition are you in? We're going to sing a mighty fortress is our God at the end. And there's a whole verse talking about the prince of darkness. How does the violence of the enemy then relate to the sovereignty of God? Some call the enemy a chained lion, referring to the sovereignty of God over him. And that is true. The devil can do nothing outside of God's sovereign control. It is not yin and yang, the dark side of the force and the light side of the force. There's no competition whatsoever. But if he is chained, it sure seems that chain is pretty long because he still prowls around. And I think the answer is this, that we walk right into the area that his chain lets him get to Whenever we give ourselves over to any sinful mindset, attitude, or action. Immediately following Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, which Jesus said was only given to him by the Father. So he's receiving revelation by the Spirit of God to his mind, declaring Jesus as the Christ. Just a few minutes later, he says, no, you won't go to the cross, essentially. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. In the same place, Just a few moments removed, when Peter gave himself over to the mindset of the enemy, Jesus identifies him as in league with the enemy. He is still called the God of this world and the one who has the power of death by the scriptures. He is defeated. I want you to understand that. The one who has the power of death has been defeated because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But he still rages. Leviathan still lurks in the deep and the dark places in the spiritual realm. I want to be as careful as I can be in balancing these things out. The devil is not out from under God's control. 
And God will slay Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, one day fully. And Jesus has already crushed the head of the serpent. But there is no reason for this text to to exist unless he poses a real threat even to believers. He's a threat akin to a devouring, roaring lion. And this is one of the reasons, at least, why we should stay alert, stay sober, and keep watch. How scary might it actually be to be let in on the prayer life of Jesus for your sake? How do you think Peter felt when Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, he might interpose, devour you like a lion, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do not be so glib and nonchalant about your life that you don't consider that these same types of conversations and requests and demands are happening in your case. It's worth noting here that our opponent, our enemy, is finally named. We've talked about a lot of other entities as we've gone through 1 Peter. We've talked about the governing authorities. We've talked about unjust masters. We've talked about unbelieving spouses. We've talked about the emperor himself, governors sent by him. And we're to relate to them in all sorts of different ways. But now the enemy, your opponent, the one who is actually against you is finally named. Who do you think the them is in the us versus them dynamic, really? What do your actions show? What does your social media behavior show? Who's the real enemy here? It is none other than Satan. We read last week Ephesians 6 in our New Testament Bible reading. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe it? There's a comparison here that is apt, I think, to self-defense. How much time, energy, resources do we spend in securing our families in a physical way? And how does that compare to our preparation and care and spending of resources to defend our families against spiritual threats. I'm not saying don't do one in preference of the other. You got to do both to be faithful. But how do they compare? You lock your door at night. Still believe in the sovereignty of God, right? You buy weapons, you get training. We lock this building down still believe in the sovereignty of God over that criminal who might come in and do something to us? What do you do against this kind of foe? I want to give an exhortation to spiritual and literal fathers in this room. To put it bluntly, the way that we lack watchfulness and preparedness in this spiritual protection You would be wiser and more sane to move your family to the worst neighborhoods in L.A. or Detroit or Aleppo 
or Tijuana or wherever else with no precautions than to go on letting your guard down in the ways that we do. So the exhortation is this, be mindful of your real adversary. So what can we do? What can we do in the face of such malice? How can we endure against such reckless hate? How can we prepare to face this foe? We're given the exhortation here, resist him. Resist him firm in your faith. That's all it says. We're to be sober-minded and watchful so that we can resist him firm in our faith. So this is how it connects. Humility and confidence in God's care gives us personal and corporate power and fortitude. He says, resist him firm in your faith. This is the battlefield situation. We are not an advancing army, contrary to what some theologians want to present to us. We are in the stronghold. The enemy rages against us as we are safe and secure in our fortress. A mighty fortress is our God. So our posture is the defensive. We stand and resist his onslaught firm in our faith. Our Lord is a strong tower. We are on the defensive. We hold the high ground, if you will. Sun Tzu, the ancient uh, general and guy who wrote The Art of War, he said, attack the enemy's army in the field. The worst policy of all is to besiege walled cities. And in Christ, that is the situation in which you are. You are in a walled city that is unshakable. So stick together. Stay close to our banners. Stay close to our fortress. Within the fortress, stay close to the rock. Stay close to our king. Resist him firm in your faith. The connection is important. Our ability to resist then is rooted in the firmness of our faith. Meaning your ability to resist. If your faith is low or the firmness of your faith is weak, you will be weak in your resistance of the enemy. And If your faith is strong, if the resolve of your faith is strong, you will be strong in your resistance of the enemy. We're not just relying on factors outside of us. I'm going to relate this to David and Goliath again. He says, you, believer, you believers, together resist this foe. It's not like, again, David and Goliath. Just send Jesus out there to conquer the foe on our behalf. Well, we just cower and wait. You're to stand on the wall alongside older brother and resist this one. Firm in your faith. The same faith that Jesus had. You're to stand on the wall alongside him, extinguishing the same fiery darts in the same way that he does with the shield of faith. So hold fast, hold the line. Jesus has not just fought the foe on your behalf. He has equipped you so that his victory is also through your faith. We will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. In this context, then, consider, as he's talking about firmness and faith, 
He's not just merely talking about basic Christian theology. It's not like you can stand against the roaring lion and just recite um, a catechism. That's obviously included, but in this context, I think it means something like confidence in the care and goodness and purpose of God all the way to the end. Eve's failure when her hour of temptation came was that, as we saw two weeks ago, that she failed to continue to believe in God's goodness. The firmness of our faith is then of the essence of this, that we resist through confidence that God is good. And it doesn't matter what flaming darts come our way, we have faith that God will see us through to the end. And that whatever He has for us is best. The problem is for us that our rebellious hearts have started to doubt the goodness of God and the kindness of God and the love of God. That is when we are most vulnerable, not when we start questioning theology. In short, the one thing that you can do to resist him, resist this kind of foe, and to stand firm against any temptation is to really, really believe that God cares for you. You know, it's amazing. If you, if you read closely Nathan's rebuke of David after his sin was exposed with Bathsheba, God, through the prophet Nathan, says something so profound. He says, if you had any lack, you could have asked me and I would have taken care of you. Which, considering the context, is mind-blowing. But that's it. We fall into temptation when we don't believe that God really cares for us. And that we got to fix it and meet our needs in our own way because we don't trust Him. That's what firmness in faith here means, I think. In the context, it is God will take care of me to the end and I can trust Him. Jesus is my hope and trust. You see how that's so much different than just saying, well, I guess... Here comes the devil, the raging lion. Uh, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Like that, that just objective acknowledgement of the truth of the gospel isn't what we're talking about here. We're talking about a personalized, deep in your soul, God will take care of me and I know he will because of what he did through Jesus on the cross. That's how it relates. This verb is also, the, the verbs here, all of them are plural. Resist him firm in your faith. He's not talking about an individual Christian out there just resisting the devil. He's saying you, all of you together, resist him firm in your faith. The faith that you all have together, your shared confession. Peter says at the very end, I have written to you briefly exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. But we'll talk about next week. Stand firm. The illusion here is, I think, to first century military formations. You know about the phalanx, hopefully you do. These very organized, very tight-knit group of soldiers that were able to withstand onslaughts that one individual soldier would not be able to do. And that the same number of soldiers, all disorganized and dispersed out there over the battlefield, wouldn't be able to withstand anyway. But all of them together holding the line, are able to withstand such a foe. That is why we need each other. 
All of us, and I do mean all of us, need the firmness of faith and the ability to stand of each other. The line is only as strong as its weakest point. So question in this regard, if it is true that God is our strong fortress, our, the mighty bulwark, never failing, are you living your life outside the walls? This is the analogy, I think. If, if I could blend the metaphors here, that to, to be not watchful, to be drunken spiritually, is to wander outside the walls and not stay with your king on the wall resisting the enemy. The main thing, other than the Holy Spirit, that, the, that God himself has given us to stay out of the rending, violent jaws of the enemy is a biblically constituted family of faith, the local church. Are you acting like it? And Some of you may need to hear this, but I care too much about you. And I care too much to not see you devoured by the enemy than to just let you hang out here and not really belong. I'm serious. Get in formation with your brothers and sisters. Please, for your own sake and for theirs. If we bug you too much or I'm just too annoying, please go find somewhere else where you can really belong because life and death hang in the balance. You don't want to be that gazelle ripped to pieces because you lived your life outside the wall. Please. It's that serious. Also, armed with confidence and humility in God's care, we will have, big words, ecclesiastical solidarity. Sorry. Ecclesiastical solidarity. What does that mean? That's solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. He says, knowing, so resist him firm in your faith, then it gives us a participle, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This shift is so counterintuitive. We should be used to this now with 1 Peter. And I'll tell you why. If we were writing this, we would not say this. I promise you. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that Christ will be victorious. Or resist him firm in your faith, knowing that your reward is great in heaven. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that this world is not your home. Or resist him firm in your faith, knowing that We'll never be plucked out of his hand. Like all of those make more sense directly theologically and seem to relate more closely to what's being said. But he doesn't say that. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And certainly here he's referring to the broad range of suffering that he's talked about all through the letter. But I think specifically here he's referring to the opponent, the enemy and the raging, roaring lion that comes against us. Because he's just said, resist him, resist him, firm in your faith. This kind of suffering, then, this spiritual warfare, if you will, is being experienced by your brothers and sisters everywhere. It is almost as if he is saying, 
that the way, or at least the primary way, that we can maintain firmness in faith is not merely to have solidarity with the Lord, but with each other. And not just with each other in this church, with Christians elsewhere. There's so much to say in that connection. It could be the fountainhead of perhaps many books, but I'll limit my observations to three. Number one, this alludes back to 1 Peter 4, verse 12. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So do not be surprised when the roaring, raging lion comes against you to devour you. It's not surprising. It's not strange. As grim as it may sound, one of the pillars of the assurance that you can have as a Christian that you are genuine is that the enemy hates you. Just like he hates all the other sons and daughters of God. We can talk about creeds and covenants and churches and denominations and doctrines. All those are very, very important. But when it comes down to it, who are the ones that the enemy really hates? The younger brothers and sisters of the one who crushed his head. So if you're being attacked, if the raging lion comes against you, take courage. He doesn't care so much about taking that line of aggression and violence against those who are already in his camp. Number two, spiritual attack or spiritual warfare is ubiquitous. When we think of spiritual warfare, what do we think of? Maybe a few recent popular books, a movie that you've seen, the frontier missions in the third world, shamans, witch doctors, and the like. But no, this kind of suffering this kind of spiritual warfare, the enemy himself raging, seeking to devour, that is happening everywhere, all the time. It's at your dinner table when someone loses their temper. It's in this room when someone irritates you. It's in this moment when you hear something and your flesh doesn't like it and the spirit is pressing and you resist. The devil is not omnipresent, want to be clear there, but you, yes, you, individual Christian, are a target of his. How? Through lies. The devil is not omnipresent, but lies and bad ideas and false teachings can be. He is the father of lies, and not to be too crass, but he has gotten very busy for thousands of years in propagating lies. So, all Christians everywhere have been putting up with this unholy abomination of the monstrous and diabolical virus strand of lies, all leading back to the devouring lion. It's the same fight everywhere. There is encouragement then that when you meet a Christian even if they don't speak the same language as you, even if they come from a completely different culture, you're not meeting a stranger. This kind of suffering is being experienced by your brothers and sisters 
everywhere. You know a great deal. If you are sober of mind and really can see what's going on and trust passages like this to explain really what is happening from now until the end of all things, then you will never meet a stranger when you meet a Christian. You know a great deal about them, even if they're unaware of what is happening. You can know that they deal with this. Number three, knowing where you belong Knowing where home really is does provide spiritual strength. There would be no other reason for him to say this, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters everywhere, if it were not meant to encourage us and give us some level of confidence. But how does he do that? It's to give us a sense that these are our people. This is where we belong. We are on this side. The enemy is on that side. And we are all together. Even if we never see each other, we're together. Jesus has liberated us from our sins and given us a new family, a new identity. We are the family now. Do you treat your church like it's really your family? Or something nice to do on a Sunday morning? Or maybe you'll give a little more time here and there if we can plan something that you'll really enjoy. This world is not our home, to be sure, but our home is being built here, in the souls, in the hearts of your brothers and sisters, the foundations are being laid, the walls are being built, everything is being put together with these living stones that are your brothers and sisters. This is home. It's not here yet. It's in construction. But you're looking at it. So, An exhortation in line with all this, live out your Christianity with mindfulness of the universal church. You have brothers and sisters everywhere that are suffering. You're not alone in this fight. We have never had to walk the pilgrim way alone. And when we take our stand on the wall of this unshakable city to resist the devil, there are brothers and sisters standing side by side with us. You are never less alone when you resist the enemy firm in your faith. Confidence and humility in God's care prepares us for the end of all things in three ways. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal eternal inheritance and glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Three ways that confidence and humility in God's care prepares us for the end. It gives us, number one, lifelong perspective. After you have suffered a little while. Some of you have suffered so greatly and for so long that it's hard to even think about. So for us to come across verses like this that seem to diminish the suffering that's in this life, I want to be so, so careful. Similar to what Paul says, these light momentary afflictions, when we consider how much Paul suffered, that he's calling that light and momentary. Consider this, though. Jesus suffered once for a short time, relatively. But that doesn't diminish the magnitude of the searing loss of the cross, does it? 
So when we say, when you have suffered for a little while, and we say, it's just for a little while, we're not trying to diminish the magnitude of your suffering. The point is to say, it is little compared to the years and years and millennia upon millennia and eon upon eon that stands before you. It does not lessen the gravity of your suffering. It only intensifies the hope that we have. Whatever suffering you endure, whatever raging of the roaring lion comes against you, it is but for a little while. It won't be this way forever. I don't want to plead with those who don't know the Lord, haven't trusted Him. Just considering the sheer terror of the possibility of eternity. If there is even less than 1% chance in your mind that these things are so, that, that a chasm of eternity stands before you, would it not be worth just a little bit of your time to investigate the claims of Christ? If, if, it's, if there's just even a tiny chance that eternity stands before you, Give it a little bit of time to see if Christ's claims are true. But believer, when you are confident in God's care, then you will know that even if the reckless hate of the enemy is almost too much to withstand, you will know that this is not how it will be. This will be for a little while. And one day, nothing but holistic blessing will be yours. You can have this lifelong perspective. Number two, we're prepared for the end of all things with the promise of eternal glory. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We can talk about glorifying God and giving him glory all we want, but that's just a partial piece of the picture. This text alludes to what is, be, what is made even more clear by other passages. Peter himself in the first chapter of his next letter that we are called to be partakers in the divine nature. You're not just to give glory to God. You're to see it. To know it. To enjoy it. And in some sense, beyond comprehension, share in it. Do you understand the extent of his care for you? That he would ordain to share his eternal glory with you. And it's all of grace. We do not deserve this. Understand this. He has called us to his eternal glory. And he's ordained to have a situation where one, he would be only just. And pure and right and loving to damn us forever to hell. He was under no obligation whatsoever, by his nature or by his decrees, that he would show us mercy. And yet, he has chosen of his own will to set his love on you. He owes you nothing, but he has chosen to give you all things. Number three. We're prepared for the end of all things with everything we need. The promise for everything we need. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, 
and establish you. There are many passages that we could go to that talk about our eternal home. We have a lot of specifics, perhaps, but I don't know if there's a more helpful passage to give us a sense of what it will be like. And I think a passage like this is even more helpful than if we had pictures. You know, it's one thing to, to go onto Airbnb or, or Hotels.com and see pictures of the, of the place that you're hoping to go. It's another thing for the, for the company offering you this vacation, guaranteeing you, you will have rest more than you've ever had. That's better than a picture. Because you can go to those nice places and come back exhausted and frustrated. And here are the promises. In some ways, it doesn't matter what it's going to look like if these are true. He will restore you. Literally, made perfect or complete. That's something we've never known. As we read this morning, we were conceived in unrighteousness. You've been broken from the start. We're not going back to Eden. You've never been there. You're going to be something completely new, something that you were meant to be from the start, but have never been. It will be confirmation. He will confirm you. It carries the sense of standing or being rooted. I think the context is the final judgment. It's similar to the word used in the Greek Old Testament in Psalm 24 when he says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand? Who will be confirmed in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The point, God will cause you to ascend his holy hill and to stand in his holy place. Number three, it will be strengthening. The context is physical. So it may allude to the physical resurrection of your body. You'll be given full steadiness and vigor of soul, something you have never known and have only been able to dream about. In short, you and I are not the kind of beings who could live forever, even if our mortality were removed, the way that our souls are now stretched out across eternity, billions of years, you and I would go insane And He will transform us into the kind of being that can not only live for that long, but also endure those eons upon eons and not drive us to insanity, but only increase our joy and gladness and fullness. Can you imagine what you're going to be? And number four, it will be establishing carries the sense of being rooted or is this similar to the word for foundation. You will be planted and secure. Immovable. Those are the promises of our God. That's how much He cares for you. He will surely do these things for you. So you see, when you grasp these promises tightly and do not let them go, you are able to stand and resist such a foe. We tremble not for him.
His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. So the exhortation here is to live your life in view of the end of all things. If you're in Christ, this is what God will do for you. Conclusion, then, praise the God who cares for us. This is verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To this one who cares for us like this and loves us like this, who is this good, be dominion forever and ever. Let it be so. That's the sense of this prayer. What it shows is that there is a connection in our hearts between our passion in worship, whether privately or together, and how much we really believe that God cares for us. God never insists that you render him glory without showing you how good he is. And so when we lack passion, when we lack focus, and when we lack care or excitement to praise him in the way that is due to him, it's because we really don't believe that he cares for us. Rebellion is right there. We don't worship because we reject his goodness. This is one of the reasons behind us gathering together tonight and praising him because he deserves it. He is so good. He's done so much for us. Therefore, we should praise him with all vigor and all zeal. If someone were to look at you on Sunday morning, would you in your body language be able to persuade them that there is an all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-good God who cares for you? Or are you waiting for the band to really get you into it? When we are persuaded that God cares for us like this, with these majestic promises, then this same doxology of Peter, to him be the dominion forever and ever, that resonates in our hearts too. And what matters most to us, that God would receive the glory and the power and dominion forever when we know how good he is and when we're convinced of it. When you see and cherish who God is, even in a very basic way, the result is a desire to praise, to break out in doxology. We do it with many other things. There are tons of things we praise. Does joy in God, the only God who does all of these things for you, ever get communicated by how you worship Him? It's one thing to say that you believe these things. Does your worship look like it? The best thing we have, the best thing we know, the best thing we've ever experienced, the most enjoyable thing we have ever encountered, the best thing of all, is not a thing. It's a person. The only God, our Savior. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, convince us that as we draw near to the end, you will take care of us. And in that confidence, give us boldness and strength to resist the enemy. May we not fall into sin. Give us by your spirit strength to hold on to the belief, the sure belief that you will most assuredly bless us in all of these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.